Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and he's tan. He's back from vacation. Yeah. Are you rested? Uh, yeah, I did get some good rest in on the vacation. You yeah, did send us nice. some, some text, some pictures from Mexico of yeah. you reading a book and just your feet. Basically, uh, you know, like a girl photo. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I sent you golf. I don't, didn't send you that. I sent you golf course pictures. No, you did not. I did not. Me and Josh, you sent us pictures of your feet in a book on your lap overlooking the ocean. And a bikini pic, which is weird. It wasn't a bikini. Okay. Thank you for that. But Yeah, yeah. nobody needs to see that. Yeah. But good time? Uh, it was relaxing. It was nice. Perfect weather. Golfed. Uh, had had a good time. Uh, I'm curious because you know. I often see people. Uh, my girlfriend will do it. My mom and dad used to do it. Go on vacations and they would take books. And I was like, "What kind of vacation are you planning on having if you're reading a book? Did you actually read? Yeah, I like to read on the airplane. Okay, uh, I don't. You know, I, they provide TVs and headphones for you. You know, TVs are everywhere in life, so yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be able to read a book. Uh, and we had, I had some beach time. There was a beach right there at the resort, and so uh-huh. just like sit in the shade, you know. And, and what read. kind of book does a, a clinical psychologist <laughs> read on the beach in Mexico? Uh, the book I've been working on right now is a is by the mythologist Joseph Campbell. And he's uh, it, it's collect what I was reading is a collection of his lectures, so it's not really a book per se, but oh. it's a collection of lectures. Good stuff. It's about it's about the mythology of our, our connection to this life and outer space. I love it. There you go. Oh. So I'm, I don't think it's a must read for Casey. Are you a Scientologist? <laughs> no. Ron L. Hubbard is that is that the guy's name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. probably on their radar. Science now. fiction. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to say that out loud. We're probably on their radar. Yeah. Well, cool. While you were out vacationing, living it up, and reading your nerdy books, yeah, um, I was holding the fort down. You always do. And you know, I was looking at our Facebook page, and we thank everybody who uh, comes to that and drops comments and shares their stories and inspiration on there. But Presley's letter just keeps climbing and climbing. I was sitting on the beach watching like comments come through. Yeah. I mean, it's like, th- I mean. Three weeks ago, that was sitting around 60,000 views, and now it's currently at 350,000 views. Wow. And I'm still getting comments from mothers, sons, daughters, husbands, and going, hey, I was this person in that story, and so eloquently put that your daughter wrote down, and and it's amazing to see. Like, I was talking to someone the other day, and they wanted a copy of the letter. It was actually last night. I did... uh, uh, a presentation for the Riverdale Substance Abuse Court. It was their drug court program. So I went and spoke for two of their graduates as they received their degree. Oh, that's nice. And one of the therapists goes, hey, do you think I could get a copy of that letter? Because I would like to read that in some of my classes and talk about addiction being a family disease and something that the whole family is afflicted with. Oh, okay. And so I was we, like, we talk about that on the show. Yeah. And I was like, sure, you, you bet you. And he's like, so what does that letter mean to you? And I was like, you know that letter has been such a gift, not just to me, not to my family, but to the world. It, it was one of those things that, you know. Well, it went viral when mm-hmm. we first, when you first read it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of that letter, um, I was afforded the opportunity to go on that TV show Survivalist with my family. That's right. Uh, I was able to open up a, a, a genuine, honest dialogue and conversation with my kids about my addiction. Uh, I've been able to, you know. I reconnect with my ex-wife, you know, and, and, and not that it was like bad, but I, I think. 
Well, I think that letter, Presley's honest expression of her experience with your addiction, uh, kind of reopened up the dialogue about what was happening in your family yeah. prior to and, and after the divorce. And, and you know, I, I, I know that unlike a lot of divorced people, you have a pretty good relationship with your ex-wife, but I think it allowed you guys to sort of just kind of get to air a few things and get it out, right? You know, and the thing is, is the letter that she wrote, it was never meant for public consumption. No, it was school assignment. Yeah, school right? assignment. Yeah. It, was, it was never meant for me to read. And she didn't even tell you about it. No, she didn't. It, no, she didn't. And so it was, so the fact that, I mean, and, and that should tell you that this was just her thoughts put on paper for an assignment, uh, you know, just being honest. And, and then people were like, you must have thought about that letter for weeks. And she goes, no, I just sat down and put pen to paper and that's what came out. Yeah. And so that's how you Very know it was authentic, authentic and yeah. honest and genuine. And luckily, her teacher saw the tremendous value mm-hmm. uh, for, for your family. And, and so he reached out and let you know about and it. And just said, hey, if she will, cool. If not, yeah. you should be proud of her. And, and and listen, I am so proud of all my children. I mean, I am very lucky. And uh, last night when I was doing the presentation for the graduation, um, I told I, you know I kind of go over my story and and I talk about my sobriety and I talk about my recovery and this is going to seem kind of weird because I at one point in the conversation I look at everybody in the room and there's two people graduating there's four or five people that are still in the program and there's some alumni and I said this is just my belief and this is my belief in my recovery and that's all I can speak on but I tell you this with almost all certainty if you do not do this for yourself the chances of it taking are very slim. You've got to do it for yourself. I said, I have tried to do it for everybody else, and it never took. I promised my ex-wife. I promised my parents. I promised my kids. I mean, there was times that I stood over my kids' beds while they slept. Alcohol on my breath, tears in my eyes, looking at them saying, listen, tomorrow's going to be different. Dad is not going to do this. And I promise you. And the crazy thing is, is that I meant that promise. And that was my intention and that was my goal. But by 12 o'clock the next day, I was on the deck with a beer in my hand because I could not beat this by myself. So that's when I decided to turn it over and let somebody else give a shot. So I say that if you don't do it for yourself, chances of it taken are, are very slim. And I, Why do you think that is? I mean, it's, you know, I everybody says they love their kids, but I've known you a long time. I know how much your family means to you. It seems like that should work, right? Like it, yeah. for our loved ones, yeah. getting sober for them should work. Why do you think it has to be for yourself? I think if you're doing it for your kids and you're doing it for your ex-wife or you're doing it for your parents or you're doing it for your girlfriend, you're putting the ownership on your problem on them, not on yourself. Because you go, in your mind, you're like, I don't think I've got a problem, but you do. And I love you so much that I'm going to do it for you. But you're not owning your problem because you think you're doing it for somebody else to to appease them and make them happy. What sneaks into that equation after the sincere, you know, desire to quit for your kids or your wife or whomever, then eventually uh, resentment starts yeah. to creep in because I can't live my life the way I want exactly, to because I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. And so, but in fact, 
you're making it all up in your head. Like they're they're not there. Oh, the spook alley that's going yeah. on in my brain. Yeah, the conversations yeah. being held. <laughs> so so not it's making not a lot of sense. When people talk about that, I think I think it's important to just emphasize you have to do it for yourself, not because recovery is a selfish thing, but it's an ownership issue. Yes, you have to do it because you want to do it for you, and that eliminates the the possibility of you blaming others, putting it on others creating developing a resentment for others because of their expectations or your perception of their expectations because it is very hard to uh, overcome an addiction it is one of the hardest things i think a person can do in their life and so if you're not grounded in that for yourself and if anybody else has ownership of that then it typically falls apart and then in the presentation i say recovery has got to be first in everything that i do now, it's not what I spend the most of my time on, but it's first in everything I do. Because I say, if you put anything above recovery, those are the first things you're going to lose if you slip. Yeah. And, and because you can't do anything else if, sober. If, yeah, if, if I'm not. All right. Yeah. Not sober. Drunk. Yeah. yeah. As a drunk. I was trying or not to use the, the, the term a drunk yeah. because that's not nice, but that's what was on my tongue. And then, <laughs> I, and, and I don't know if the people walked away were like, I don't know what the heck he was saying because I was just talking. Um. I go. Wait, you didn't write a whole speech? And no. Come with notes? No, I didn't actually. That's so unlike you. And I actually told them that in my speech. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Why well, start now? Yeah. And so I'm it's telling been 30 years. So I'm telling them, and then I say, you know, but one of my biggest motivators in my sobriety is my kids. Because I want my kids to have the dad they deserve. So I don't do it for my kids. I do it because of my kids. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And I, I think you've had a ton of reinforcement over the years you've been sober of how much better your relationship is with them. That's, I mean, that's worth working for. I'm not doing this f- for you. I'm doing this because of you because all of you guys deserve a better me and you deserve the dad that I am right now. You didn't deserve the dad and, you had. And you get to have the relationship that you have. And that's the crazy thing about recovery is once you find recovery and sobriety in that world, it's amazing. And everybody else get a better version of you. Yeah. They get they, they, they get the they get the better you. But you're not doing it for them. And I hope that makes sense. I think I think anybody um, with any experience in that would understand. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got to do it for yourself. Let me ask you this question. Yes. I know we're trying to wrap up and no, move on good. to our guests. But what, what – so your kids are, are on the cusp of young adulthood. Yeah, mm-hmm. Your daughter's graduating this year? Yeah, 18. She's going to be going to university. Right. Going, going – are you British? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> going to university, governor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so when your kids come to you in the future, mm-hmm. they say, well, I want to drink. Like uh, I'm going to learn to just drink like a gentleman. How, do you, how are you going to feel about that? Are you, do you take the abstinence stance that they should never drink? No. Nope. Okay, so what do you, how do you, as a recovering alcoholic, how do you, what do you say to your kids when, I mean, she's going, I, she's going to Utah State now. I don't no, know. No, she's going to the University of Utah. Oh, okay. I don't know if, what you know about the University of Utah, but sometimes kids drink there. No, yeah, no. Yeah, the, the, the moss, everything, football games, tailgating, fraternities. <laughs> Just like sororities. every other college. Yeah, I understand that. And you know so what? So what, what's your advice to your kids if they are like, well, what's wrong with uh, having a, a beer at a party, dad, or a cocktail at, out to dinner? Here's the reality. She's 18 and she's going to do whatever she's going to want to do. Right. And I think if I tell her no in a hard line, I think she's going to do it anyways. I think she's going to do what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. All I could do is sit down and have an open, honest conversation. No, this. Your great-grandfather was an alcoholic. 
Your father is an alcoholic, and it's something that runs in our genes. You've got an older, you've got an uncle that doesn't seem to have a problem with alcohol. You've got another uncle that seems to. So here, right? Yeah, I mean, so it's all over the place. It's right? all over the place. I'm not telling you not to drink. I'm not telling you to drink. I need you to know all the facts before you get into it. I can tell you right now, you're under 21 and it gets against the law. If you get busted, there's some ramifications that can mess with your driver's license, can mess with your job, and there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Scholarship, school, everything. So all of yeah. that. So with that being said, you're an adult considered by the state of Utah at 18. You make your own decision. And you know I'll always support you and I'll be there and answer any questions you have. Cool. I, so I, that's perfect. And the reason I asked you that is because I wanted you to demonstrate the types of things that I'm recommending for Mental Health Awareness Month in May. And that's for parents to have those kind of open conversations with their kids about their family history of substance abuse and use, uh, mental health. You know, what runs in our families? And can we create an open dialogue with our kids so that if – I think the only thing I would add to what you said is please don't ever hide it from me. Yeah. But, you know, be honest with me. Let's. I'm always here to talk to you about it. So May is is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I think it's a great opportunity to remind everybody that that's a perfect example of how I hope parents will talk with their kids at any age, but especially as they're getting close to some independence. Right? Three years ago on this podcast, we had my dad on, and that's the first time I found out that his father was an alcoholic. He had never shared that with Never you. shared. It was yeah. something that we never talked about. And I, I mean, that information might even been, with all your drinking, your yep. dad never pulled you aside. Nope. Why do you think that is? Because he saw you struggling. Embarrassment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, maybe we, we hope it skips a generation or maybe we don't want to think. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we don't want to think it's that bad. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. 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 And, I, and so for that, I, I don't know. And I think there's a generational aspect of just being open and talking about personal things. Our parents didn't weren't as comfortable no. talking about those kinds of anything personal, but especially mental health, substance use and abuse. Uh, but even things like, you know, hey, take it easy on the bacon. You know, grandpa died of a heart attack. You know, yeah. th- those kinds of family health issues. And I put mental health and substance abuse right up there with everything else that should be talked about. But it's a ge- I th- I'm grateful to be part of a generation where maybe we're changing that. Uh, last week, I went to the maturation class with my uh, fifth grader. <laughs> Me and Bowden are sitting oh, there. Good times. Two two great things happened. We're sitting there, and soon as they talk, I about, love Bowden. Like I wish I was there. Once. Soon as they start talking about puberty, I hear all these giggling around, yeah, yeah. and I was like, "What is that?" And I look over, and all the boys had made mustaches and put them on. <laughs> and so all these fifth graders had mustaches on, and so I say, "Okay," so I go, "Stop, Bowden. This is serious." And then they switched over to the women parts, and yeah. as soon as they said vagina. I start laughing, <laughs> and Bowden elbows me. He's like, Dad, come on, let's be come serious. On, <laughs> so at one point, we both nudged each other and told each other to be serious. But that's the you yeah. know, <laughs> support, supporting yeah. each other through it. Hey, well, somebody supporting the community is our guest today. His name is Jordan. Uh, he's been a resident, and now he's an employee of the Other Side Academy. We're going to find out his story. That's coming up next right here on Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jordan Holdaway. Uh, he's uh, an employee, but at one time uh, a member of the other side. Student. Ac- student. Student. So before we get into your story, for those who don't know, what is the Other Side Academy? Uh, so the Other Side Academy is a two-and-a-half-year minimum commitment. It's a, a life skills 
and vocational training school for men and women that have been in and out of jail, prison, dealt with substance abuse issues their entire life, chronic homelessness, pretty much anybody that's had a disheveled life, we're there to help. Minimum two-and-a-half-year commitment. Minimum two-and-a-half-year commitment. So uh, question for you, what does it cost and what insurance does you take? So the Other Side Academy is completely free mm-hmm. to anyone. You just need to walk in the door and request an interview, or if you find yourself incarcerated, you can write us from the jail or prison that you're in. We'll send one of our staff members down there to conduct an interview with you. We take no insurance from any insurance companies, and the taxpayer is not picking up the buck either. Wow. We do not take any federal or state funding. We generate all of our revenue that keeps our doors doors open through our, our social enterprises. We have a construction company, the number one rated thrift store in the state, and the number one rated moving company in the state. So that's at, how we how we generate our revenue. At any given time, how that, many? That's incredible. It's it's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Like think about it. Self sustaining. How, how many times do we answer? Like people say they can't get in, can't get treatment. You know, insurance problems, finance. You know, and here we have this organization that's do that's creating their own financial base and offering a tremendous service, life changing uh, service to people for free. It blows me away. So before we – because this it's fascinating about the Other Side Academy. Who are potential clients? Somebody who's looking at 10 years plus prison time? Absolutely. We have, we have people at the Other Side Academy that we're, we're looking at 10 years to life sentences that got the opportunity to come here. And we, we've, we've had people that are, you know, been a bad dad that's got wrapped up in destroyed his life, right, and anything in between. So anybody that's, that's dealt with those issues that, that have destroyed their lives, whether it be – Small, but we like to shoot for the the guys that are the ex-convicts that have a criminal record that have done that stuff because the the academy is a hard process, right? Like this is this is a life-altering thing. So if you're not really at the end of your rope, it's probably going to be a hard thing for you to get into. Because two and a half years, like when we talk about most of our guests on the show have been in rehab for you know thirty days, 45. ninety days, forty-five, those kind, you know, uh, intensive outpatient program where they got to for, for three home. months yeah. or six months, you know. So two and, and, and a half. We're not downplaying that because we've got some great results with that. Oh, absolutely, and and sometimes people go through that process several Multiple. times before it clicks. But for for you guys, tell me about the two and a half years. That seems specific. Is there a reason for that? So the two and a half years is a minimum commitment. Right. And let me let me put it this way. You can stay as long as you want because the, the funding doesn't run out, right? There's not right. after 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, <clears> the, <throat> the funding's run out. Sorry, go ahead, get out there and figure out what to do with your life. So they're earning their way by they're working their way, yep. the so, program. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the first steps of responsibility, right? Mm. Why, if I messed my life up, I got me down this hole, with my choices, my actions, and the consequences of those, should you, the taxpayer, or should my rich mom and dad, or whoever else, pay, pay my way, right? Why should mm. you do that? I should, I should be taking accountability. I should be putting well, the work in. That's the first step in ownership, right? Absolutely. It's not somebody else isn't paying for it. So two and a half years is the minimum commitment, and that's, that's your, your entry level, right? Like, I'm going to stay for two years. It's broken up into freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And then there's a master student phase that you can enter if you choose to stay longer than the two years. So two years basically broken up into those increments, and you're going to gain certain responsibilities as you go through the program. You're going to gain privileges, different things. Um, and that six months, that half year, if you chose to graduate at the two years, would be a transitional phase. And we have an amazing, amazing setup for transitioning people back into the community. It's not like, okay, go out there, figure out what you're going to do. Um, we have – System set up with uh, employers all over the all over the valley, and I'm not talking like working at McDonald's or 
grinding as a janitor somewhere. We're, we're talking comparable jobs that will turn into careers for people. So that pe- they can support themselves for, for real. Absolutely. Yeah. We also have a, a savings program that we've uh, accompanied with Ally Bank. So we have a savings program. If you've stayed in the program for the two years and you're – you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You go through this financial literacy course with Ally Bank. And, I mean, you've got bankers coming in. You've got stockbrokers. They're teaching you some what to do with your money. Oh, that's great. They will match you. So over this year's time, it's a years-long program, you save $5,000, they'll match that $5,000. Wow, you. that's impressive. And not only that, while you've been at the academy, as you reach certain privilege levels in your senior phases and stuff, there's money coming in. Mountain America Credit Union is coupled with us as well. You've got bad credit. You've got debts that are out there that are ha- have been haunting you. That's one of the first things you're doing when you hit about 18 months is going into Mountain America, setting up a secured credit card, getting your finances decided and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's comprehensive. So whole person change because that's one of the something. things. You know, if a person comes out of, you know, the hospital, uh, if they come out of a rehab program, if they come out of prison, then they sometimes have debt that's insurmountable mm-hmm. uh, and kind of pushes them back into bad behaviors and bad habits. So this actually helps you uh, for, for really uh, a real clean start. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, and you say insurmountable, but oftentimes, you know, for, for somebody that's been in addiction for so long, it's not as insurmountable as if you just have some guidance to get through it. Right. But it's getting that courage yeah. and having that support and that help that says, no, you can do this. I've watched hundreds of people, myself included, Credit in the you know in the dumpster, no savings, no anything, be up to where they could be having a mortgage within a couple of years with just practicing. You know you've got to take care of yourself first, right? The character mm-hmm. change has to take place first. But you follow some financial goals and you and you create a game plan and stick to it. It's really not as insurmountable. And I as, think as, that's I like. So I'm getting now why you refer to the people that are there as students Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of learning that's going on. That's exactly what it is. It's life skills. It's life skills. It's behavior. It's to become a community member and care about – because that's what we believe, you know, is that the solution to addiction is a sense of community. You've been marginalized. You've been pushed out for so long, isolated yourself, whether through your own choices or the consequences that you've had to face, you've been isolated from that human contact, yeah. that deep, meaningful thing, you know? And that's what addiction becomes. I know I know for me, when you're an addict, that drug, that whatever that thing is you're chasing, that becomes your core value with all your relationships. Mm. All the other people in your life, that's their core value too, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. you start losing that connection to people and it just becomes about the drug use. Well, that's what we say on the podcast. The opposite of uh, addiction isn't abstinence. It's connection, and it's finding that connection. Yep. So we heard a little bit about the Other Side Academy. Now let's hear Jordan's story. Uh, where does okay. it begin? Because you're a graduate. I am a graduate. He yeah. spent four years in the program, and now he runs a construction company for them. Yeah. So right. how did you get there? The Other Side Builders. So, well, I was born uh, back in back in 81, so I'm, I'm 42 years old. Mom was uh, an at-home mom. Dad was a military guy. So we moved around the country a lot when I was a kid. Uh, mom and dad's marriage fell apart when I was about six, seven years old. And I guess I better step back a second. So mom had had an affair uh, and I was the result of that affair. So oh, okay. there's a gap between me and I have an older brother and an older sister. So there's a 10-year gap between me and my siblings. Accident, right? Accident oh. baby that, uh, you know, that carries with it. Later how on how in old life. were you when you found out that? I, I think I was probably four or five years old when my mom revealed that to me, you know, old enough to understand what was going on. But the, the father figure that I had in my life yeah. was not my natural father. Yeah. It was my brother and sister's father. 
all credit to him. He never he never treated me. He probably treated me better than them sometimes. So hmm. can't can't give him a. Well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. So they tried to to make that happen, but you know, just the domestic situation was not good with them. And finally, mom said, "I'm I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore." She moved us back to Utah. Me and my brother and my sister. Is that where your mom was from? Yeah, yeah. We all originated in Utah, but mm-hmm. bounced around as army brats. His dad was stationed at different places. Uh, came back here. So mom's taken on single parent living that she hasn't had to do before, right? And taking care of three kids. Um, brother and sister are high school age, but I'm elementary school age, you know. So they're they're about to fly the coop, you know. Yeah. They're, they're getting ready to head out on missions and do college and do that stuff. So I kind of turned into an only child, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, she was busy working. She She was never one to really – ask for help from other people or look for handouts and stuff. So mom would work two, three jobs sometimes to make ends meet. So I kind of ran the roost. Yeah. Yeah. I was, what do they call that? A latchkey kid. Uh You're you're coming home and you're figuring it out. Um, I was naturally energetic, kind of rambunctious and stuff. I remember in uh, third grade had a teacher that told my mom, I think he's got a learning disability. My mom says, he doesn't have a learning disability, you know, test him. So they, they tested me. Turned out I had an elevated IQ and too much time on my hands, not enough direction. You needed right? to be in the gifted program. <laughs> That's what happened. Exactly. Yeah. Went into the gifted program, was doing the, you know, college level math and in, in sixth grade, stuff like that. You know, and the, with the expectation you're going to go into high school, do an AP courses, you know, move forward, you're going to run the world one day, right? Which a lot of the kids that I went to that school with, man, I look at where they landed and where I landed and... Yeah. So anyways. <laughs> it just looks over there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, I think one of the things that was a pivotal moment for me is mom was finding places for me to be, stay busy, to do stuff, right? So she'd bring me down here to Salt Lake. I grew up in Kaysville, so, you know, small suburban farm community. Uh, brought me down here to Salt Lake, put me into some summer camps in the summertime, you know what I mean? So I had some Keep direction. Keep busy. Yeah, but inner city kids – Mm. You know what I mean? Taught me a lot of bad habits while I was down here. And so I think I took that with me from the summer back to small town Kaysville, the, you know, LDS community. And then the bad boy image started to grow. Right. Oh. You know what I mean? I remember, I remember swearing in front of my friends for the first time in there. Yeah. But then it wasn't <laughs> shortly, you know, it wasn't too far after that they were starting to cuss and do that stuff too. Let me ask you this. Um, did you enjoy the bad boy image? Well, of course. You know what I mean? I I think growing up, single parent household, probably the only one in our neighborhood, only one in the ward, right? Um, the stigma, everybody in the ward knew the situation with my mom and, and with me. I wasn't old enough to understand the, you know, what that does. But yeah. there were situations throughout my childhood where I felt like outsider, like kind of outcast, but couldn't explain why. Because I didn't have the, you know, the adult understanding to get the picture. But not only that, you think about the people that are celebrated in pop culture, uh, the Fonz, James Dean. Yep. You know, the, all, they were all the bad boys. Everybody in The Outsiders. Yes. <laughs> See, Thomas Howell. Yeah. Yep. You know, I mean, that, that, yeah, the bad boy kind of aloof uh, image is pretty enticing. And in those years of our early development, it's identity development yeah. from the psychologist's point of view. And so we're all striving to find something that sets us apart, makes us different. Some kids go down the routes that are uh, approved, like becoming an honor student or an athlete. athlete. But a lot of kids drift towards kind of the bad boy, bad girl image, and that becomes their identity. And it is of 
of a certain type of value when you're a kid and a teenager. Yeah, and I think that, you know, mom was an iron fist within the house, you know what I mean, but gone all the time because she was working. So she'd come in with the rules, she'd come in with the expectations, the consequences to my actions, but there was no dad there, there was no older brother and sister to she really had no help backup. Yeah, so eventually, you know, I got bigger than mom and there was nothing she could do. And so that, yeah, that bad boy image kind of started to grow. I got the attention from that. Um, and if you told me not to do something, or if I saw that something shocked you, then I did more of it, right? Mm-hmm. I did more of it. That the shock it. value. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like looking in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so, Doesn't sound like Casey at all. Do you remember the first time you tried drugs or alcohol? I do, I do. Uh, the first, so I had a, a best friend. He was got a job at a Maverick or something. We were probably 15 years old, as, you know, and he was cleaning the back room or something. So we'd, he's still in beer and cigarettes, right? And that was kind of it, just experimenting. I didn't have any friends that used cigarettes that drank or anything but it was like naturally mm-hmm. i'm already on that course right so we're gonna check out the things we're not supposed well, that's to. that's sort of the natural evolution of the bad boy like you said it might start with swearing or you know talking about things that are taboo but eventually it's got to move into like you know oh he's the kid who smokes or drinks but you know what but that's the natural uh way of all of the all of the drugs and alcohol, it, you know, what I mean, at first it, it, it's swearing, then it's cigarettes, then it's alcohol, then it's marijuana. Then, you know, yeah, I mean, there's it, a it's progression. always pushing it one step further because if this is good, this next thing is going to be amazing, and then you just keep moving up that ladder. Yeah, well, and that's why it's so critical. You know, looking back now, that you are mindful of every choice you make, man. It's not just about. Well, I can't go over there because that's a bar or that's a, you know, a trap house. No, there's a whole slew of decisions that lead up to you even getting to that place, you know. Oh, for and sure. So, so looking back on that, I, I remember drinking the first beer out in a ditch on the side of my house with my buddy. Disgusting. Didn't even, you know, didn't even care This is what it. they're talking about? This yeah. is horrible. It really started for me where it got its hooks in me is when it started to become a social activity. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it was something cool. There was a There was a friend of mine, his... His uh, sister's husband, and I don't know what was up with this guy. I mean, there must have been some kind of weird stuff because we're 15 years old and he's in his late 20s and he's reeling us into his his little office and buying us booze and doing this stuff. You know what I mean? So I don't know where that could have gone yeah. at some point. But, <laughs> I can tell you where it yeah. could have gone. Yeah, but, and that's usually looking, what's on those guys' back on minds, it, you yeah. don't. You don't think it at the time. Right. You just think it's cool. You're hanging out with the older guy. It, man, yeah, that's that, pretty. That was, that's dangerous. Yeah. Like what, what? What business do I have at 30 years old getting? Kids yeah. But predators yeah. in that kind of situation, they're good at reading a room because in your mind, you're like, we're that cool that this guy wants to hang exactly. with us. Right. And you're not thinking, well, wait a minute, man. He's got another agenda. How lame is this guy that he wants right. to hang with us? And he's ex- that's the reality of yeah. it. And he's exposing us to all kinds of things that we don't even know about yet, right? Like, yeah. Like drugs, pot, that stuff. And so, you know, started carrying that into into high school. I think this this was would have been about 15 years old, first year of high school. I was a 4.0 student my first two years of high school and got into the smoking weed, you know, and, and then sloughing school, doing that regularly, getting suspended for getting caught out back smoking, just that stuff. And it started picking up. And rather than those things scaring me into doing something different or a fear of whatever, it it kind of just drove me. I just wanted, I wanted well, how to were, more. How were like the, the other, so you obviously at that age, like most kids were susceptible to everyone else's reaction to you. And so, like you said, you like to be the bad boy. You like to shock people, but you were growing up in this sort of calm suburban, uh, 
and, and for people listening, an LDS ward is like your congregation. So the, the boys around you, when they saw you doing and heard about you doing these things, what was their reaction? You know, some of them followed suit. I think I had a strong personality to some of them that it was a leadership role. And then there was other ones that didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I remember there was two brothers that lived behind me and we were always, you know, growing up always together doing stuff. The one brother got his life together, went one direction. The other one kind of followed me. And I I think even to this day, I haven't talked to him in probably 10 years, but I think he's still dealing with, with substance abuse Mm. issues, you know? And so I had some follow me and I had some go the other way. And then as, as you go down that path, you meet more people like yourself, right? I'm meeting more addicts. I'm meeting more people that have multi-generational dysfunction in their family. And then I'm taking on these new things. What you, what you look back and you go, Oh my heck, you know, you're talking about your daughter, things you wouldn't want her to be exposed to. Yeah. And when you're that age and when you're on that quest, being exposed to those things seems like it's cool. Like you're learning, like you're adult. It's kind of thrilling. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, Warren Buffett says, you want me to show you your future? Show me your friends. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You know, and there you are. You're saying, because now you're hanging out with more people who use drugs, more people who, you know, are are into that type of lifestyle. So that's what you're surrounding yourself with. And so, yeah. Where where did you think you were going to go? Yeah. And who, who are the coolest parents on the block to me? The ones that let you drink. Exactly. We'd rather you did it here with us <laughs> where we know you're safe. Right. You know what I mean? And as they're bombed out out in the garage themselves on heroin and stuff. That yeah. I've, My favorite is that I've said that on this show. I got so much flack for it. <laughs> I can't wait for the Facebook post to roll in. <laughs> because I am with you 100%, 100%. Because, and here's what a parent should say. No. You know. No. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not going to support that. It's yeah. not, not good. It's not healthy. So now you're getting suspended, and and instead of you changing your life, you leaned into it harder. Absolutely. Get to be a senior in high school, have scratched by to just, you know, maintaining a GPA where I could possibly graduate. Mm -hmm. And senior year, have an appointment set up to go in and talk to the principal with my mom. Well, I don't show up to that because I'm busy out dropping acid with, with the buddies, you know, and just laughing about it. Kicks me out of high school. I go, I move out of my mom's house when I'm 17 years old because I'm ready to just do my thing. You know? Yeah. Is mom making you leave or you? No, no, it was my off. choice. Okay. She had put consequence after consequence in place to try to direct me. But like I said, I had just kind of, I figured out how to do it myself. I bought my own first car myself, tricked a friend's dad into co-signing a loan on me because mom wasn't going to help me. There's know? that so, IQ at play. Yeah, it, there was a lot of that. So yeah. 17, moved out with two of my buddies, did my, whatever I had to make up for high school in packets, you know. At this point, I've started using meth, so I better I better step back to that because that was that became my drug yeah. choice. Wow. Uh, Sixteen years old, you know, and when you're when you're doing pot and you're drinking and stuff, you kind of have this crazy caste system you create in your head. I'll never do those drugs. Oh yeah, lines. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll uh, never cross that I'm line. I'm never going to do those chemicals. I'm never going to, you know what I mean? And it's only a matter of time. And I remember doing that. Had a friend of mine that had started using meth, and uh, we'd all judge him and kind of shame him and do this and that and and the day came when it was my turn, right? Where I'm like, okay, let me try that out. Well, how did that switch flip for you? Uh, you know, juvenile immaturity, a girlfriend that I had maybe dated for a week or two. So you're pretty serious. Oh, yeah. We were, we were, we were getting married. <laughs> you know, the, the heartbreak yeah. of, a, of a 16-year-old, right? Yeah. Like, well, let me get some of that then. Just an excuse for more negative behavior. Yeah. Uh, did, the, did a line of, of meth on a on a desk in an Arby's that we worked at. And I remember I stayed up for three days 
off that one little line. And that was back when it was, it was crank, you know, mm-hmm. there, was the, there was the old crank. And I remember that euphoric feeling that I had for three days with no sleep. Um, and I was just, wow, the lights were brighter. I felt better. I felt confident. I felt like I could take on the world. And that kind of, that was a, the fact that I can remember that so vividly to this moment, you know what I mean? That was, That's the alert. That's the hook. That was the dragon I chased for yeah. the next 20 years was 20 that years. moment, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So how quick did it escalate <laughs> from a line on a desk at Arby's uh, to full-blown addiction? Oh, so, you know, I was a drinker all those years. I, I would, you know, it was always drinking. All my friends, you know, by the time we got out of high school, that's all we did. We, we, we found a job or we did whatever, you know, and there's that, there's that convergence in high school where your friends start growing up. They start going, pursuing careers. What am I going to do? Am I going to go to college? Am I going to do this or that? And I went down that party path. I just kept the party going. You know, I didn't grow up. I didn't realize that I was also losing the responsible influences on my in my life as I because they're moving on. Yeah, right. Right. You yeah. either you either get with the picture or you you move ahead. There's already that part of life at that age. You know, where you're everybody's going to kind of part ways and start doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what you're left with is you're left with kind of the bottom of the barrel, right? The people that you've bought drugs from, the people that have the nastier habits than you do that are willing to tolerate your low bar and you're willing to tolerate theirs. And so, you know, I, I would drink every day. Uh, I was kind of, meth was expensive. I was a weekend warrior. You know, if I mm-hmm. could get my hands on a, on a teener or an eight ball for the weekend, that's what we would do, you know. And I, I did that from 18 up until probably about 21, you know. And I would hold down a job. I would, I would, I would do those things, but they were way below the trajectory I should have been on for my life. Right. So there's that guilt of living way below what I know I can, but loving the fact that I'm kind of, how, how did I have it said to me once? I'd rather be, I would rather be a leader among losers than a loser among leaders. And that was kind of like. That was where I was at, right? King of the trailer park. So it's back to that identity. Like you're like, okay, well, at least I'm the leader of the losers. Exactly. And trying to find a little self-esteem. Out of all these losers, I'm (laughs) leading them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I yeah, I get it. Just twisted. And so, and like I said, that becomes your basis for all your relationships is the drugs. You know, of course, there's 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 intimate moments that you have. There's things that you go through that that are whatever. But really, the core value of all my relationships were centered around let's get messed up. And so at about 21, a guy that I had known had gone to prison and gotten back out. So like I said, you know, I was a weekend warrior on the meth and stuff. And I, and I remember I, I borrowed him my car, you know, so he could go out and do his thing. And he came back with a, the biggest sack of dope I had ever seen in my life. And he says, I can get you hooked up on this. And that was another trajectory change. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I went from just being this guy that, you know, now, now I can really be, I can be a an ambassador among losers, right? Like, <laughs> and so I started down that path of, of dealing, of dealing drugs, you know what I mean? And that thrill that comes with that, that need, you know, your phone's going off all day, this, just this, this feeling of whatever. But not only that, I had started to pick up on the criminal behaviors of everybody else around me because dealing drugs and, and being a drug addict at the same time, you know, you're always using your own product. You're always in the hole. Mm-hmm. You're always doing whatever. You're always chasing it. And you're not holding down a job. At this point, I'm not, I, don't, I could care less about holding down work. You know, and to say that it was 
uh, the drugs faltering. No, I had just shifted priorities. My priority was to just stay high. And so burglaries started happening. That was I got into breaking into people's garages, taking their credit cards, going and writing checks, doing that stuff. So at 23, you know, and this is taking place over a two-year period. I'm, I'm, you know, I lose my home, I lose my job, I lose all credit. You know, cars falling apart, just everything's in disarray. Living in a girlfriend's, you know, mom's basement and out robbing the neighborhood while I'm doing this, and so that catches up to you, right? 23 years old, I get hit with my first felonies, first time in jail, get cashed into that system. And that's, I mean, you want to talk about just getting exposed to new ways of thinking, you know, what I was doing before. But now you've got the criminal system that's involved. And that's a whole other world, right? A master's class. Oh, yeah. It's a master's class of of guys that are incapable of maintaining their own lives without, you know, the state taking care of your ward of the state. Yeah. You've got... Maybe your mom comes and visits you and drops some money on your books. I mean, you literally are just parasitic in your behavior. And you've got guys, and you're just being reinforced and reinforced and re- for months and years on end, right? Get into some, some rehab programs. No, uh, just pause. On, on, the, on the prison stuff, yeah. the felonies, did that seem – that, was that a scary thing for you or was it another level of being a bad boy? Like did you think it was kind of cool – to be at that level now or, or was it sort of did it check you in any way well it was kind of it's kind of like a, a checklist on when you're starting to live that lifestyle right like these are I'm hearing all these guys talk about jail I'm hearing them talk about parole probation but I have no relation to it I don't have family members that have been through that yeah. so I remember the first time I, I got the handcuffs on me and they're walking me into the county jail right and it's scary I'm scared I'm like oh wow you know I'm in trouble this is a this is a big deal I've got the police officers gun on their hip pushing me around doing all that this this has just gotten to a new level of seriousness here but as with anything you can adapt to just about anything you know Mm -hmm. and and i jail was not a hard experience it was you know it's daycare for adults it's endurance yeah it's got endurance (laughs) yeah you know i mean getting babysat yeah 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 and so and you'll find your community. So that there. fear, yeah. that fear, went away, and you just adapted. Oh yeah, and you have you have cellmates, and you have other guys, you know, that you've met before, that you see, that you run into, and they're going to teach you the ropes, right? We're going to teach you what you have to do in here to maintain respect, what you have to do in here. What are the what are the do's? What are the don'ts? Mm-hmm. Here's the little tricks that you can you can have to get what you want. You know what I mean? And and so another system that you're just plugging into more and more depraved behavior. So you get out, you go check out some recoveries. Yep. So, you know, and that's that's part of probation. That's part of what they do. They, they try to plug you into some of these different things, um, get involved. I think that was my first exposure probably to 12-step programs, to AA and stuff, you know. At this point, do you know you have a problem or do you still think you're living the dream? Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 10 foot tall. I'm bulletproof. I, you know, I probably weigh 125 pounds. <laughs> I'm, you know, face picked apart, uh, just probably haven't showered in a week. This is like my daily, you know, but I'm feeling like Rico Suave, right? Because you're just twisted up in this whole thing. So then you're back out on the streets. You got introduced to some 12-step programs, but yep. you're probably just doing that to keep the parole. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it becomes another platform too. You you, you guys know, you've, you've been in some 12-step groups. Oh, I can get up here on this microphone and tell everybody what all my problems are? Let me, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> let me work on my, let me work on my public speaking right now, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then you're, you're introduced to other people that are 
now that's not to say anything about a 12-step group. I met some of the greatest guys that sponsored me later on in my years of hardcore recovery and, and those things. But there's also a, a subset of people in there oh, that, yeah. that are in there because they know that there's some weak. There's weak women that are available in there. There's more drug connections. There's more everything, right? That are, that are just there it's a place where a predatorial mindset can thrive. Yep. And that's probably where I was at. You know what I mean? Another place that I can get that attaboy or, or, or whatever. Doesn't mean I wasn't picking up some of the things that they were saying, right? You know, you absorb everything where you go like a sponge. So where does it go from there? So it goes from there to just this cycle of broken commitments. You know, mom trying to help me out. Let's maybe we'll buy him a car. Maybe we can get, you know, let's do all these financial things. Let's do, let's do these Maybe we'll move them to a different location, right? So, Geographicals, all that stuff. And this happens all the time, <laughs> and, and, and it becomes enabling. But I, it, it's not to blame the parents because they are genuinely trying to help, but they're trying to help a problem that they don't understand. Yeah. So they're doing what they can because this is what they can. You know, I can I can get him a car, so at least he can get to work. Right. I can get him a place to stay, not at my house, but I can get him a place to stay, so at least he has a warm uh, bed and a roof over his head. Absolutely. And And, and it's not to say that... Don't do that, but you've got to truly understand the problem, and what it does become is a classic form of enabling. And I'm, you know, what's great about telling your story uh, in this on this podcast in this format is a lot of the listeners are friends and families uh, of addicts, yep. and they don't know what to do. And so, by you sharing your story of what worked and what didn't, I hope that influences our listeners because I know they're struggling with their friends and family. So you're out there on the streets running and gunning. Your family's doing what they can. Yep, meeting more and more people. The network, you know, I, I go into drug court. You said you were just yeah. speaking of drug court. That for me, because I wasn't ready to change, I was only there because it was a consequence to my actions, just turned into a spiderweb network of more. I mean, that was probably the biggest explosion of my criminal behavior, of drug dealing, everything just blossomed in that. So I graduated drug court and it was a struggle. I mean, you want to talk about a nightmare life, right? Two years of, I know I can, I'm going to get drug twist, drug tested once or twice a week. So if I shoot this window just right, I can get high on this day, drink three to five gallons of water. I mean, just this nightmare for two years of chasing my own. It sounds tip. exhausting. It was crazy. Yeah. I look back on it now and I go, what I mean, you want to talk about a living hell. If you put any of that energy into something productive, oh, it would have been amazing. Exactly. Tell yeah. me about it. But yeah. th And that's it, right? I was, I'm an energetic person that needs to put my energy into something, and I just chose the wrong direction. You so you I mean? graduate drug court. End up in prison two months later. Ooh, what for? Uh, so I get, I get busted again. So the drug court, you know, you, you complete that. They usually will adjudicate your charges, let you move on your way. And I'm right back at it. I pick up more charges and they say, we're done. You know what I mean? We've, you've done, you've done a 30 day program. You've done an in, in residential in the jail program. You've done drug court. You've done, you know what I mean? And I've just kind of, you've used up all your chances that they were offering. Yeah. And, and I was really good. I was a chameleon. I need to put that part in there too, because the judges, the prosecutors, the counselors, they believed every single thing I would tell them. I was, I was always, gosh, you just have so much potential, man. Gosh, let's just get you around this band. I mean, I had first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, twelfth chance with every one of them. But here's the thing that I, <laughs> that I want to talk about real quick is is that I don't think the judges, the prosecutors, the attorneys, the therapists were wrong. No, 
You, but you weren't ready to hear that. I just wasn't ready to give it they, a Because, I mean, they saw you. And, they, I mean, I'm looking at you now, and I'm hearing you talk, and you have so much potential. I mean, can you imagine them going, listen, maybe this one's going to work. And so I, you can't blame them for trying. Oh, no, I, and I don't put it on them. But, like, you were just talking about, you know, just a minute ago with, with, your, with you and your children and how you were doing it for them. Mm-hmm. And then when you did it for you, it changed, right? Yeah. And that's what it was. I had to get to a place where, where I, I was doing it for me, where it wasn't just a show anymore. It isn't about, can I get your approval for how I'm behaving in this moment? It's an actual whole person thing. Because an addict will get sober himself, doesn't care about anybody else, really. It, it, it's going to affect him because I'm not doing it for you. Right. I'm, you know, if you say cool, that's great. But the reality is, is I'm not doing it for the cooler than great. I'm not going to stop. Yeah, I'm doing it yeah. because... I want to be a better yeah. person. And, and that was a lesson that took me a decade to learn was that a lot of my stuff, man, was my choices and my actions, whether they be positive or negative, were based off of how can I get approval from you or from you, whether you're whether you're the ex-con that's running the gang in the prison or you're the counselor that's got the keys to my freedom, right? I figured out how to be that person for everybody. Very duplicitous, very, you know, chameleon-like. And so you have did to you see it as manipulative back then? Did oh, not in the moment. I thought I was super smart. You know, yeah, I just thought like I was, you're pulling one over. I was, on I was these a guys. people person. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so two months after you graduate drug court, you're looking at prison. Did you go to prison? I did go to prison. So I went to, the, to prison the first time at uh, I would have been twenty twenty six years old. How much time did I did? Almost three years. Wow. Almost three years that time. So that was. I, I went into prison. Now that was, you know, I'd been building up to it. I'd been, you know, it's not like this is a foreign thing. I've been building up to it. But I remember walking through those prison gates, you know, and being told I was sentenced. And, and you know, each one of those opportunities we talked about that I was given, I had the best intentions in the moment with each oh, one sure. of them too. You know what I mean? I believed my own BS no, each yeah, time, no, right? Yeah. I'm going to do this. I got this. And then here it is. I'm in prison. I'm walking through those gates, the concertina wire, the double gates are closing behind you. And the first thing they have you do when you get in there is you fill out a paper. Where do you want your body sent? Ooh. If you die in it, that's the very first thing they give you, right? Wow. And so I'm like, wow, this is, this is real, you know what I mean? And proceed through that, man. And it's just, it's, you're indoctrinated into the prison mentality. You got choices in there. You can either get with the, get with the program and, you know, try to try to do your time and try to make it as much as possible for yourself. You know, let me let me pursue some programming. Let me pursue some education. Let me do this. You can get involved in the gangs or you can just become a bump on the log. Right. I chose to go with the programming stuff. You know what I mean? And the, the gang thing never appealed to me, which is weird because of the choices I was making outside. But I saw real quickly. I was like, man, I have a plethora of problems for myself. And if I get involved in this gang life, now I have my problems and I have yours and yours and yours and you guys all have a million problems too nah i'm not interested and in i don't that. know if gangs are looking for 125 pound uh, <laughs> well, that's true that's true you know I mean? like, that was true he's really not going to help us if we get in a yeah. fight so that unless was... we use them to hit people with yeah there you go exactly so you go into the programming yeah i go into the programming out of the prisons you know and, there, and there's lots of options out there they have uh, a place called conquest out there that's that's for substance abusers and, and doing that stuff and it's it's a therapeutic community that they have designed to try and, and teach you some accountability and, and changing behaviors there's also i taught high school while i was in prison now I, again i get out of prison three years best intentions every time had a game plan set up really spent the time in there working on myself physically i got really into aa like really into it you know big book thumping mm-hmm. could quote the verses to you doing all that stuff and uh, 
but I get out of prison and it's not, it's not but four or five months that I'm back on my way back in, go to prison for a couple more years, four or five months. And the, and the consequences each time just keep increasing. Right. And the level of what I am choosing to do. I mean, now we're getting into violence. We're getting into home invasions. We're getting into, you know, and, and thank goodness never got convicted of any of those things, but we're getting into kidnapping people. We're getting into that type of stuff. Whoa. Because that's the, just the progression. You can't live in that culture. Did you feel like you needed to progress in order to have more drugs, have more money, or was it more of a status? I, I don't even know that it was a it was a status type thing or anything like that. It was you spend so much time around, you know. So here I am. I've been doing this for two or three years. Then I'm hanging out with guys that have been doing it for twenty five years, and and what they're preaching to you, what they're saying to you about how life works, you start to buy into their system. And that is, it becomes your belief system, right? And so. Oh, you're fine. So all of a sudden, you're doing home invasions, yeah. talking about kidnapping, uh, in and out of prison multiple times. Uh, I'm sensing there's a rock bottom coming up. Yeah, so, I mean, just as a fast forward to save, save time, it's just the same cycle for years, and it gets more and more violent. It gets How many more, prison stints did you I've been to prison do? four times, so I've done eight years, just a little bit under eight years in the state prison, and I did about three years in the county jails. Wow. Mm-hmm. So if you picture... It's a lot of incarceration. Was, yeah, time, 23 yeah. years old. Yeah. I ended up at the other side academy at 35. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's eight years... There's there's 11 years. Most of that time is in incarcerated. Yes, you got yeah. little blips where you're getting out. Yeah. You know, and when you when you get into a work release program or you get into a halfway house, you're taken off on the run because that just... And I mean, I was smarter than that, but it was like, these are stupid decisions I'm making, but I just kept going with it because it was... It'd become my life. Yeah. So what circumstance brings you to either prison or the other side? So last little run out there, you know, I've picked up probably, I want to say it was 17 felony charges oh. on that last little run. Well, how many felonies total did you have? Uh, on my record to yeah. this to this day, what I've been convicted of, I have 27 felonies on my record. Wow. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it is. And that's what, you know, after plea bargains and after the drop That's down, what it ended up being. That's, that's, yeah. that's what it ends up, you know, four here, five here, seven here. So I had about 17 felonies I was looking at. I had a gun charge in there, uh, you know, carrying a, a firearm while, you know, selling drugs. And so I was I was pretty much done. You know, I, I with my record and the amount of times I've been in and out, I was looking at a good 15 years that I'd probably do, you know, end up paroling in, in 10 or 12. I knew the gravity of my situation and trying to shoot for a loophole, trying to shoot for whatever, have a lawyer involved. You know, we're looking for that. Well, the cop didn't say this at the right time. You know, anything I can do to skirt accountability on myself that I had put myself here. And I had a cellmate in, in jail that said, well, I just heard about this new program that just opened up. It's down in Salt Lake. It's for ex convicts. You know, and at this point, you know, I've spent I've spent 10 years in this system. I'm kind of turning into one of these old dogs in the system. Right. And that scares me because I've watched 60 year old men in prison and that's it. They're dying there. There's nobody there for them. There's nothing like it's a pathetic life. So I realize I'm on this course. If I go to prison for the next seven to 15 years, I'm never I'm never getting out of this thing. Like there's no other chances. This is it. Right. So he tells me about this program that had just opened. He said, it's a program that's run by a bunch of ex-cons for like habitual offenders. Like it's like a last chance option. 
he didn't know what the name of it was. Took a few months for us to figure it out by contacting people. And so I wrote a letter to the academy. Um, didn't really get any response back from them. The the prosecutors in the case were not going to let me go do this academy thing. And by whatever stroke of luck, the prosecutors changed right when I was about to go set up trial. And uh, the, the new prosecutor came in and I said, let's present this academy idea to him. And my lawyer says, no, they've already said no. And I said, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. And he says, you know what? If they'll accept you at that academy, I'll send you there. Because I sent four guys there and they split within two weeks. But here's the deal. You're going to plead guilty to everything. And so when you do split or you do take off, you're not going to see the light of day. You're done. They'll really get you. Then. Yeah, it was the, yeah. You know, that was the deal, right? So within a few days, I've got the academy coming to pick me up. Dave, Dave DeRocher, our executive director, uh, didn't know him at the time. He's a, like a father figure to me now, mentor. But then he's pulling into the jail, picking me up. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. I just know. I just got it. So you didn't really know that much about the program? I I, I didn't. I didn't. It was brand new. It had only been opened for three or four months. You know what I mean? And these guys, the the academy had been trying to get into into the jails, into the prosecutor's office to get an established thing, right? Like they were trying to build some credibility. This was here in Utah. Yeah. This because was, it's, they've had another model in California that worked well there. They did have another model in, in California that worked well, but it wasn't, it wasn't infamous. It wasn't popular. Like it, it's crazy when you, when you take the dollar value value out of the criminal justice system, it's crazy how many people don't back it up. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I believe it. It's a money-making machine. Yeah. Oh, I, the, yeah. The, the rehab, rehab, jails, prisons, probations. It's a money-making machine. So you sign up. They come pick you up. Uh, you think you were looking at 15 years, maybe you paroled in 12, but you heard about the other side academy. Yep. So you sign up, don't know really much about it. They come and pick you up, and they take you there. And what do they tell you? Well, so first when you get to the academy, there's a bench right by the door. And they tell you, take a seat right there. Take a seat on that bench. So the bench is positioned right by the door. There's no locked doors in this house. There's no corrections officers. There's no police officer. You know, there's there, there you go. And you sit there for anywhere from three to eight hours on this bench. Just sitting <laughs> like as you're watching. Club? Yeah, as you're watching everybody, you know, in this house conducting their business. So you could just split. You, you just could, take off. You could. And they do that on purpose. They do that yeah. on purpose to see. What's this guy about? Is does does he have what it takes to sit still for three to eight hours without? Hey, what's going on? You know, hey, I'm I'm here. I'm ready for. You know, it's a yeah. test. It's a and the interview process that you go through before you get even brought to the academy has some rigorous tests in it mm. that that are meant to get emotional responses out of you to see do you still have a soul left and are you ready to do something different with yourself? So I sat on that bench for you know most of the day just sitting there going the door's right there i could walk right out right now but what's on the other side of that door for me nothing so let's give this let's give this a shot you know what i mean i've done programs i can program i can do this this program was not like any program i had ever done before so you've got an an upper staff that had had come and started this program a few months before all ex-convicts all ex-drug addicts dave our, our director spent 25 years in california prisons before he got his life together. And I mean, doing the thing, right? Like doing the thing. So he could identify very quickly. You, you can't, uh, uh, I'm sorry, but a, a therapist, a counselor, a clinician has no clue the, the BS that we will spin when we're given information, when we're talking it out, you know what I mean? Like another, 
attic. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody who's been there can 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 read it. I oh, yeah. agree. And yeah. absolutely put it together. So that's so I got there and and you know nothing had changed about me other than I got myself out of a jam and I I did want to do something different. I didn't want to go to prison for the rest of my life, but I had it figured out in my head. I can just make it through this two year program. I'll go back to my job that I had. I was remodeling houses. It was a pretty good job, you know. I I've got a girlfriend that that's going to wait for me, right? <laughs> yeah, wait for me through my and uh, so I kind of had my game plan. I'm just going to use you guys as a mode to get out of the jam. I got myself in, and then I got it from there. So I go into the academy. I have I have convict mentalities, right? And there's a whole bunch of other convicts there, and we call it what we call it is getting dirty in the in the academy. And, and getting dirty is when you are living that same old lifestyle. So at the, at the academy, when you take a seat on that bench, you're asked to forget about your past. You're asked not to talk about it. You're asked not to. Tell Bring war stories. Tell, not even war stories. Glamorize we, we, we don't even want to hear where you were from. We don't want to know where you lived. We don't know what kind of work you had. We don't want to do anything. This bench right here is a second chance at your life. Take it. Why would you, re, why would you bring what was in the past into right now? Hmm. That was a mind-blowing yeah. thing. And that's a hard thing. You know, of course, people, you can't do that. Oh, I'm yeah. going to have a – because you don't know how to relate to people. So right. one of the first things you learn in the academy is how to have a conversation with somebody – that's not based off of you pumping up your ego, you telling some kind of total BS story. It's kind of hard. It's crazy. You'll literally spend the first few weeks. All you can do is say, hi, how's your day? And you're not even, you're not even supposed to ask somebody how they're doing because it'll invite them. Mm-hmm. So they want you to be completely focused in the present. Just exactly. be in the now. Yep. You are, it's sort of like a rebirth. Yep. This is, you're learning everything for the first time. You are not your past. Yep. And we, and that's the thing is we've told the stories for so long that in jail, in prison, on the streets, totally twisted, totally exaggerated, right? Like the amount of drugs I was selling, the amount of women I was with, the things the I was doing. The fish was this big. A- absolutely. And you've told yeah. that story over and over and over again. And anybody that's done time, they know exactly what we're talking about. That's all you do. You just sit in there and tell stories. Your greatest hits. Yeah. And, and, and build that identity more and more and more. And so that's the goal at the academy. You know, you don't realize it when you first get there, mm-hmm. but you realize it when you're down the road and what that was doing for you. It was shattering that old identity because if you can't talk about it, it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. If I can't tell you about what all that stuff has done, and there comes a time later on where you, where you get into your past and you'll get that, that piece out. But what we want you to – let's see if you can just be a decent person right now. And we call it acting as if, right? Act as if you're responsible. Act as if you're honest. Act as if you're accountable until you actually are. I like it. That changed my life. I, you, that's man. a great model. It's very interesting. <laughs> I like the psychology of that. Yeah. So you spend uh, your first two years there. Uh, at one point, did you find it start to click? And you're like, hey, maybe they're on to something here. I did. And, and let, me, let me put this part in. So the first year that I was there, I behaved very much behind closed doors like the person that I've explained to you that I was, duplicitous. And, and that the academy's culture naturally extracts that from stuff. But me, I sought out people that were semi like me, right? And so in the first year that I was there, having having nasty little conversations in the corner, allowing other people to do things while I did things, right? And as we got to levels where we had some responsibility and freedom where we could travel out in the community, I needed to call that girlfriend that was waiting for me, which is not an option. When you're at the academy, uh, significant others, family members, if you have children, you're not going to be talking to your children the entire time you're at the academy. Wow. Not until you reach a certain level and then that will start to be. And what we do is we try to break the cycles, right? Because 
you you cannot continue to introduce the same people into you as you as you're trying to change yourself and get something different out of it. It's, so you're, you're you're breaking rules. I am. I'm breaking rules, all based off of me and my agenda and what I want to do. But about about a year into it, I really you know I'm inundated in this environment and I start to see the value of it and I you know right have this going on, but also in learning these things. So I kind of tone that down. I'm like I'm going to fix that. I'm just I'm not I'm going to stop doing these things. I'm going to stop doing that. And I did, but at the academy we talk about accountability, and you cannot sweep things under the rug. If you've done something that you're not supposed to be doing, our expectation and who you should become by the time you've gone through this process is somebody that will say, look, I did this, and I need to know what I need to do to fix it, to correct how it's affected you, how it's affected you, me, the organization, whatever we need to do. I didn't do that. I thought I could sweep it under the rug. And so at about two years into it, I was really bought in, you know, I was, I was going on with stuff, but there was a guy that I had to hold some boundaries with that. I was his boss at work at the Academy and he was being lazy and he knew about my stuff. Right. And that's another part of accountability. If you clean up your past, if you clean up what's wrong in the moment, you never have to look over your shoulder again. I spent 20 years of my life looking over my shoulder, trying to remember every lie I had told everybody, every game I tried to run on everybody. I don't have to do that today. So this this was one of those moments, though, where my past caught up to me, right? I thought I could sweep it under the rug, move on. So I had to hold boundaries with him. I said, man, you're being lazy. You need to get to work on time. You need to do th- Who are you to tell me that? I'm going to go over there and tell them what you've done, you know what I mean, that you've been hiding. And so that that came to a head right there. Dave, our executive director, like I said, had become a, a mentor to me and a, and just somebody that I look up to. And Dave is somebody that's, I mean, he's changing the world right now. I'm sure you guys have seen him out there yeah. in stuff. And so he, uh, he came home and he looked at me and he said, I mean, and this is a guy that he doesn't get, he, he, he can get angry because it's a dramatic effect that he's trying to get on people. Yeah. But he got emotional when he was talking to me. He says, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and nobody has disappointed me to the level that you have. Oh. And the look in his eyes when he told me that was the same look my mother had had, employers, girlfriends, teachers, every community member. But at that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm so sick of seeing that look, that disappointed look that I know I created that. I'm never going to do that again. And Dave said, here's what I'm going to do. You, you, if I let you graduate right now, if I let you move on with your life, you will not have done what you needed to do while you're here. So you have two options. You can walk out the door or you can start over and you can do this the way that you were supposed to do it from the very beginning. And at this point, I was, I was more or less free or free. I had been placed, you know, my, my probation had been knocked down. I was pretty much free to go. And I heard what he said and I, pl- I played the tape forward. My, I go, where do I go if I walk away from here? I go knock on mom's door. I'm 40 years old. Knocking on, you know what I mean? 38 at the time, knocking on mom's door once again, get a feeder full of the BS about how this place screwed me over, all the lies, all that. No, I screwed me over. And so I said to myself, no, this is it. I'm done. I'm done with with this. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to follow what they've told me. You know, I've learned the basics of it. Now I just have to, I just have to do it. Make the next right move every moment. That was a pivotal, life-changing moment for me where I, I said, I'd never want to see that look of disappointment again, right? And I want to stand on my own two feet. I don't, I don't want anybody to have to doubt what comes out of my mouth. I don't want anybody to have to. And I did. I spent the next two years. I spent living it as a student there. 
So you went back like you started like, over. I started over at two years, which you know, when you're two years into a program like that, you have achieved some status, right? It's a it's a hierarchical setup that's going on in there. I lost everything, and you know what? I was okay with it because I I I trusted Dave. I love Dave, uh, and. So what have that I got to impressive. lose? What have I got to lose? It is impressive because you're on the precipice of leaving. I was. And you had kind of worked the system to the point where it had worked in your favor technically, but not internally. No. And I knew I knew when he when he said that to me, if I let you leave here, if I if I let you graduate this program and I say, Yeah, you're good and I let you walk out these doors, you will be back in prison. Because you felt like you gained the system. Yeah, you'll be back in prison, and then you haven't changed what you came here to change. And that's where we are at the academy. You know, like we're not just trying to get stats pushed through the door. We're actually trying to change people's lives so that they never have to live that way again. And it becomes a deep, like, just relationship that you. Build. We are a family there, and that becomes a driving force for what we do. You know, it's it's very disappointing sometimes because you'll invest everything you've got in people, and and they still will make the wrong choice. But man. It's changed my life. I mean, I'm involved. When it works, it's beautiful. Well, when it, and not only that, when it works, it's beautiful. But but if you're on that path, you're not getting off your path, right? Like, if I'm putting everything I've got into making sure that my life is good, that that I'm doing, I'm I'm crossing my T's, dotting my I's, keeping my commitments, telling people when I've made a mistake, saying what can I do to fix it. You know what I mean? Then the mistakes stay this big. Yeah. They don't get they don't get monumental where you got to clean them up. And so it's. I mean, that's just. So you graduate then? Yeah, I graduated at, at four years. At four years, so I started over, did it again. Uh, approached Dave when I was, you know, probably a year from graduating, six months, you know, and Dave says, I love who you're becoming. And, like, what can we do to get you to stay around here? You're, you're somebody that can help people change their lives. And I said, well, I'm looking at how this place is growing and the different things that are going on. And I said, it seems like, it seems like we should open a contracting side of things. I'd, I'd be interested in that. And he says... Okay, duly noted. Go on about your life. Go on about what I've, what you're doing here. And then as I got close to the graduation date, he tapped me on the shoulder and he says, remember that conversation we had about you wanting to do a contractor thing? Go figure out what you got to do to get your license. We'll back you, you know? So wow. I did that and set, set that wing up of stuff. So I've, I graduated. I've lived there now uh, for three years past my graduation as a, I'm, I'm a on-call 24-hour employee because we have – a massive operation going on now the, the amount that we've grown i have uh 13 guys that work under me in, in our department my girlfriend not the one that i was calling <laughs> not, the, not the one that i was calling that was just a stupid thing but uh, a woman that i went through the program with we're, we're in a great relationship we've been together since you know for three years we brought her teenage son who was living with her parents as her life was a wreck brought him into our relationship he's 16 now like I've done a bang up job, you know what I mean? It's been it's been cool. Like parenthood was not what I planned on. I this what this has turned into for me, it was not the game plan, but I'm so grateful for it. I mean, like teaching somebody that's a malleable kid from my experience, from my past, how to how to get through, navigate through some of those things, man, the 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 lessons you learn for yourself as a parent trying to teach a kid, I mean, it just reinforces who you want to be so much more, you know what I mean? That's <laughs> It's awesome. It's inspiring. And I will say, not only are you guys doing great things for people in the community in Salt Lake, but you're making it look nice. 
And my office is just down the street from where they have uh, purchased buildings, refurbished buildings, created a, a more beautiful corner of Salt Lake City. And I'll sometimes take a walk, go for a walk if I have a break or drive by that area just to see what they've been doing. And it, they, they're they doing good and making it look nice. Well, I'm glad you said that because they invited me and you to go over there and take a tour of the facility and see what amazing things they are doing. I am all about doing that. That would be great. So I, I love the fact that the Other Side Academy is helping out uh, and making the community a better place with people who might have thought that they were broken. In fact, they weren't. They just needed to be put in the right situation and pointed in the right direction. I'm not asking for a statistic here, just your observation. The people that you've known through the program, have they also benefited? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can tell you that we have been keeping stats. I can give you some idea. (laughs) So what we found in, in the two and a half years... So somebody that comes and just stays for the two-and-a-half-year program, if you stay immersed in that, and, and mind you, your your relationship with your family is is going to start to dissipate. We'll get you back to a point where you can start having that, but we break those ties. If you have children, and that's one of the hard things for prospective students that are coming in or a hang-up that they'll have is, I can't see my kids. My kids need me. I need this or that. And we'll point out to them, well, where have you been? You've been arrested 25 times. How much time have you done? You know, Who's been your raising your kids yeah. this entire time? You're, you haven't been there. Anyways, we need to fix that so that you can be somebody that matters. You know what I mean? The kids are in a safe place. Whoever's been taking care of them is taking care of them right now. Let's get you taking care of you so you can yeah. show up. So that's a hard thing for people to deal with. But so if you stay the two years, the minimum thing, and then the six months transitional area, our stats show that uh, I want to say it's around like 60% are not reoffending or relapsing in, That's in the next five That's years. That's a lot of, right? yeah. Because inpatient treatment facilities are boasting about 14 to 18%, yeah. if that. Well, so let me give you this piece. So four years, I stayed four years, and we've had a number. An, I mean, I'm talking dozens and dozens of people that have stayed four years. Mm-hmm. Four years is a magic number for people like us. Four years, the statistics jump up to almost 95 percent wow success rate that they because you're you're immersed in this culture yeah not only do you get the tools and the skills that you need but you get the amount of time to practice them in a safe environment where they become you that's that's the point of it is is that these skills and these these real you know we don't talk about relapse prevention that's none of the things those aren't things that are in our toolbox we talk about making the next right move and becoming the kind of person that can stand on their own two feet and doesn't make these type of decisions and always always remember like you said earlier, you are the sum total of the people you spend your time with. So if you think you're going to go through a, a program, get, get all these great you know, intentions going on, these, these goals and these dreams, and then you're going to walk right back into the same group of people, yeah. you're going to go right. You, you can't find happiness in the place you lost it. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. that's, that's one of those key things. I don't talk to anybody from my past. I mean, I, my mom, my brother and sister, of course, I have great – I have – I'm the dude that shows up now, right? <laughs> I was the dude that never showed up, yeah. that they were always having to get out of trouble or whatever. Like today, I'm a guy that they ask for advice. Do you know how good that feels? Do you know how good that That's feels? Amazing. When your family members are, call you up and say, hey, can I run something by you real quick? That was never me. That's, <laughs> That's a lot of trust, right? That, that you didn't have before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, so you're really talking about identity 
change. Like you said, that those skills become who the person is. And so it takes time and a lot of effort, but it sounds like you guys have, uh, you're running a program over there that can accomplish that. And 60% is impressive to me, but 95% is uh, just unbelievable. And I'm so glad you came on the show today. I can't wait to come see the place. Uh, we, we can't wait From to the have inside, because I've seen the outside lots yeah, of we times. We can't wait <laughs> to have you guys, because trust me, there's, there's a lot better people than me to tell you guys about it well we'd love to have them on the program but thank you for stopping by and sharing your story with us it's impressive i mean if you want to do the numbers real quick a guy who's been in prison or jail for at least 11 years of his life his 25 felonies that has landed on him but more than that uh and now running a construction site and how many years of sobriety do you have now i have seven and a half years congratulations that's amazing and it's an honor to know you thank you for stopping by dr matt you ready to go take a tour? I'm ready. I've been wanting to for a few years now. <laughs> the Other Side Academy doing wonderful things. And we want to say thanks for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot what, Dr. Matt? It's KSL Podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.